Prepare yourself for the terror. The prison of madness where few enter and none return. Welcome to Unsung Horrors. With Lance. And Erica. Leave all your sanity behind. It can't help you now. Welcome to another episode of Unsung Horrors, the podcast where we review underseen horror movies, specifically those which have fewer than 1,000 views on Letterboxd. I'm Erica. I am Lance. And this week we are covering a movie that I picked specifically for my birthday. <laughs> and it is a perfect birthday gift. Yes, I think so. Uh, if you've seen this movie, uh, Damned in Venice, 1978, you will absolutely, and you know me, you will absolutely understand why. This is currently available on YouTube and it has 315 views on Letterboxd. It's crazy. Yes. Not enough. Not enough. Needs a Blu-ray desperately. But before we get into the movie, Lance is kind enough to bring me my birthday present, so I'm going to open it right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, as she's unwrapping it, everybody, her birthday is this month, March. Yeah. And... Stupid she- South By, always... Man, like too many people are in town. I can't go It's out like St. Patrick's Day too. You got Stone Cold Day. Yeah. I got Stone Cold Day. I got the Ides of March. I got, you know, all these things. And it's like, you know what? Can I, can I have my birthday please? Anyway. Oh shit. Okay. Nice. Yes. You've told me you were getting this for me and I totally forgot. This is how okay. bad my I memory was, is. <laughs> I was like, I'm glad she's acting surprised, <laughs> but I don't think she is. So Lance got me the Cannibal Holocaust and the Savage Cinema of Ruggiero Diodato book. Yeah, so Severin sold out of that pretty quick. Yeah. And then they put a couple on a couple months ago. They put they said they had a few more in stock. So had to get you a copy. I, I wasn't stoked. I wasn't sure if you had it, and that's why I gave you the you don't have this book, do you? Okay, well don't get it. Because... I did it because it sold out and I'm super stoked to have it now. Look at all that look at all those bloody people. Oh. Happy birthday. Thank you. I don't know if it's as good as, as, I mean, looking at those bloody dead body pages is a lot of fun. Yeah. Compared to what's in this movie. It's all fun. It is. It's, it's all, all fun. It's all a gift to this world. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So Damned in Venice, 1978. Quick summary. We have Mark, who is a young man who is blind, and his sister, Christine, and they move into a boarding house in Venice that's owned by their aunt and uncle. And this is after the death of their grandmother, which technically is Mark's fault. And we'll get into that. So Mark often has these sort of nightmarish visions of violence and sort of unclear events. And they're signaled by like a bright light flashing then at him. And then all of a sudden he's seen some events happening. Christine turns the boarding house into a brothel after both the aunt and uncle die shortly after their arrival. But she does have one male guest come to stay with them briefly, a mysterious man named Dan which is, we'll get into his, that's the worst name ever for who he is. Dan the man. (laughs) So after Dan leaves, Christine discovers that she is pregnant, though she claims to not know who the father is because she has never had sex, either with her boyfriend Giorgio or with Dan. Uh, She gets abortion shamed by Father Stefano into keeping it. Mark believes that the baby is evil and soon convinces Christine's now husband, Giorgio, of the same. Giorgio soon begins to document all of the events leading up to the birth of Christine's son, Alex. 
But because so much of what Mark believes is a result of his visions, which contradict reality, it soon becomes difficult to know what or who is real and what he should do about Alex. The baby is uncertain. Well, I think we all know what Erica would do with this baby. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly what happened in this movie, because uh, the moral of the story is you get rewarded for doing that. So, <laughs> yeah, but do you? I don't know. There, yeah, we'll get into it. Yeah, we'll get into that. So getting into some of the film specifics, this was directed by Ugo Liberatori. He's only got eight film credits as, as a director. So I watched one and a half. I watched The Sex of Angels. He also co-wrote that, which is basically like a 60s psychedelic three women on a boat plus some guy they sort of kidnap. They do a bunch of drugs and there's some sort of moral ambiguity about it. It was okay. Okay. I started watching May Morning. I watched May Morning. I saw that. I was bored to tears. How was it? Yeah. I mean, I enjoyed it overall. I mean, it is very, it's just a drama. Yeah. It's like about these uh, like a- academics at Oxford University involving disciplined students and they're dealing with like these university customs. Mm-hmm. It does have uh, Alessio Orano. Is mm-hmm. that how you say his name? Yeah. Who's an incredibly beautiful oh, man yes that's why i kept watching it for 30 minutes because i was right. like well at least i can watch him but then after that long i was like all right the novelty is worn off yeah he's the guy in Kotsi's the killer must kill again and bob is lisa the devil mm-hmm. super, super good looking guy but he's kind of the outsider he's the italian at this oxford university and people are very prejudiced towards him and stuff yeah i mean i i actually enjoyed it i watched it like a sunday afternoon it just yeah i kind of was vibing with it I, and that's the only other one i watched from uh from Ugo, yeah. As I far might, as direction goes, yeah, he wrote a lot of good ones. He did. I might, I might finish it because I, I got thirty minutes in, so I feel like I've, I'm already semi committed. And the ending is uh, pretty. It's a okay. pretty decent ending. Okay. Yeah. All right. I would. I'd write it out. All right. Um, all right. So screenwriters for Damned in Venice, we have the director, of course, Liberatori. Pretty much everything that he's done is all co-writing credits. Uh, a lot of what he's done are multinational. Uh, productions, you know, Italian, German, like Mill of the Stone Women, which we covered uh, back in a very early episode from 1960. One of our first episodes. Yeah. Um, And then there's a few that I think both you and I watched. And Mm -hmm. I have to say, like, going through the stuff that he's written as like the extra watches for this has been really great. I agree. Every single thing I watched, including like May Morning, but all his co-writing stuff, four stars for me. Like I, I loved them. Yeah, there, there's, there were movies that I had not heard of and were off my radar. There was Corruption from 1963, which is about a young man who decides he's going to be a priest, but his father is like this big businessman and is like tries to. It's called the Corruption because his dad is trying to corrupt his moral ideals. Right. And, and um, prevent him from joining like this monastery. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that one was pretty good. That was on YouTube, I think. Yeah, I think it was. It was beautifully shot. It reminded me of One Summer of Happiness, the Arnie Matson that I had watched. Okay. You know, visually, all the stuff on the water. And yeah. Really great movie, I thought. Really great. One of the other ones that I really liked, I, I know you watched this one too, was The Hellbenders from 1967. Oh, yeah. With uh, Joseph Cotton waving that Confederate flag. Yeah, Sergio <laughs> Corbucci. Mm-hmm. It was really good. It's it's about, um, so Joseph Cotton and his sons rob a stagecoach of a whole bunch of money with the intent to take that money to 
the, it takes place right after the civil war has ended. Mm-hmm. His intent is that the South shall rise again. He's basically yeah. going to build the army up again. Yeah. Form an army, <laughs> win back the South. It's <laughs> terrible, but it's, it's fun to watch. It is. Yeah. Uh, very downbeat ending. Very, very Corbucci. And that sounds like I, I really did like it. Uh, yeah. Did like it a lot. That one was on uh, Tubi. If you want to check that out. I think my favorite though, that I watched from his other writing credits was big guns from 1972. Oh yeah. A lot of that had to do with Elaine Delon being in it, who is one of my husbands and I love. <laughs> I've talked about big guns. This is one of my, I already said, it's one of my favorite watches of this year. Yeah. Like I, oh, so good. Yeah. I mean, I had been meaning to watch it when, after you talked about it, but this gave, obviously gave me a perfect excuse to finally to watch it. I think my only issue with it is that Delon trying to convince us he's Sicilian, which he is so very not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he played like Zorro. I mean, they give him some odd, some odd parts, but. Yeah. Dark hair, pull... dark hair does not make an Italian. <laughs> <laughs> it worked for me. All right. <laughs> I, yeah, I loved it. I mean, some other stuff that I'd watched from Liberatory, I watched another uh, spaghetti Western that he uh, had co-written called A Minute to Pray, mm-hmm. A Second to Die. This one was about like a cowboy who uh, who had like these epileptic fits mm-hmm. and his father also had some sort of, you know, epileptic seizures and stuff. So he attributed it to some sort of hereditary trait. And he's just like this outlaw who's just kind of causing havoc and stuff. That one's a lot of fun, too. I think that one was on YouTube. Okay. One thing I did find with uh, Liberatory was I feel like there's a lot of focus on father and son relationships mm-hmm. or some sort of parent, you know, child uh, or some sort of like her family tradition. Mm-hmm. So I watched all these movies. Actually, I watched Damned in Venice last. And I was kind of thinking, like, I wonder if there'll be any type of focus on family in Damned in Venice. Which sure is. A little bit, but not as much as these other ones. Exactly, yeah. I, was, yeah. I was a little I was a little surprised by it because there seemed to be a consistent theme that just wasn't there in Damned in Venice. Yeah. Uh, I watched uh, Hercules and the Princess of Troy. Okay. Which was a pilot, like a pilot that was that he co-wrote for, it was a made-for-TV starring uh, Gordon Scott, who's Tarzan, <laughs> but he was playing Hercules. <laughs> uh, you know, more tan than muscular looking. Sure. It was serviceable little, you know, sword and sandal storyline. but yeah. And The Witch. The Witch. Did uh, you watch that? Okay, yeah. I had that on my watch list and I didn't get around to it. That one I'd had in my watch list too. And that two one, hours and I was like, I don't have time for that right now. <laughs> yeah. I felt the same way. But it that one was good. This thing is it's super erotic. Like, Oh, okay. I'm in. It's worth it. The Witch, you know, The Witch Under thing. It's called The Witch mm-hmm. uh, or The Witch in Love. It's very subtle. Uh, but when like they kind of pull back the curtains and show like, this woman or these women might be witches. It's kind of like, this is what I've been waiting for. Okay. Um, I think that one was on YouTube. Yeah, it is. Uh, so some of the other screenwriters, we've got Domenico Raffaele, Ottavio Alessi, who did a couple of the Emmanuel movies, and Roberto Gandis, who co-wrote Big Guns with Ugo Liberatore, Lamberto Bava's Macabre, which is, you know, this might be a hot take, but... As much as I love demons, I kind of like Macabre a little bit better just because of like the Southern Gothic element plus double child murder in it and necrophilia. Like it's just, it's got so much good stuff going on. Yeah. It has all the ingredients that you require. Yes. And also co-wrote Madhouse, Ovidio Asinitis, 
Oh, yes. Which was the very first movie that Lance and I ever did a podcast together. That's true, Mm -hmm. isn't it? Yeah, with my brother, with Cody. (laughs) Yeah, that was fun. I remember I, because this was my very first podcast ever. I was very nervous. Mm -hmm. So I watched that movie like so many times. And my notes (laughs) were just like, I remember I was deep diving like, did you guys see this car in the background? Like, <laughs> really trying to like break down and you know analyze this movie for clues that weren't there. I mean, but that's what makes movies so fun. It is. Everybody should watch the Mad- or Madhouse. Yes, absolutely. It's got an Arrow release. It's probably streaming still somewhere. Check it out. All right, cinematography by Alfio Contini. He also did Cavani's The Night Porter from 1974. Uh, Lindsay's Oasis of Fear, um, also known as An Ideal Place to Kill, not A Quiet Place to Kill. That's another Lindsay mm. movie uh, from 1971. And Flavia the Heretic uh, from 1974, starring Florinda Bulkin. Uh, art direction by Sergio Canavari, who also worked on Baba's Bay of Blood and Fulci's Massacre Time. And then uh, score by Pino DiNaggio, a De Palma favorite for Dress to Kill, Blowout, Carrie. He also worked on Piranha, Tourist Trap, uh, another Venetian set film, Don't Look Now, and one of Lance's all-time favorite Katsi movies, Hercules. Oh, yeah. 100%. (laughs) Yeah, well, well I, I'll probably talk a little more about Dinaggio's score, but uh, it did. I did get a lot of Tourist Trap vibes. Uh, and like these were some of his earlier films, so you can see he's kind of finding and creating his own sound, which is really awesome to hear. Yeah. Besides the score, there's also, and I'll probably talk about it later, there's also just like these random sound bursts here and there. It's either like, not, not quite jump scare sounds, but like there'll be like these laughing sounds and then like a burst of something else and there's some weird like it's some effect that you know it's not like a boing sound like a you know Mm -hmm. it's like a it's like a snare drum that has some sort of like flanger delay effect on it yeah but yeah those were it's kind of humorous but i I don't think that was the point i think it was kind of like to kind of jar the audience (laughs) so yeah again i think it's him you know just early in his career just coming up with these like quote, groundbreaking sounds that (laughs) really are kind of funny now watching. Yeah. All right. So getting into the cast, we have Renato Sesti as Mark. He also played children in uh, Torso and Baba's Bay of Blood. He's Renata and Albert's son. Uncredited, but he's in there. Reina Niehaus is Christine. She's got uh, 11 film credits only. Not much of note except for Arabella Black Angel from 1989. I think the biggest name in here is definitely going to be Olga Carlados. And she plays multiple roles in this. I mean, she's technically the same person, sort of, but uh, she plays Madeline Winters, their aunt. She also plays a midwife on a boat. And then she also plays, there's another young girl in the film called Vicky. She plays her mother. So so Olga Carlados, most people know her as Paola and Fulci Zombie. She was also in Murder Rock, Once Upon a Time in America, uh, Castellari's Kioma, and Rene Cardona Jr.'s Cyclone. She plays the pregnant lady in Cyclone. Yes. They don't <laughs> eat the baby in that one. It's so stupid. <laughs> That's why I wanted to bring that up. I was waiting for that reply. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, I did actually go back and rewatch the beginning after you told me that a kid dies in the plane crash. So thank you for that. That was a kid, right? That yeah. That he picks up and just kind of tosses. I like... had to rewind to be like, okay, who was sitting where? And then when he picks it up and you can see how big the body is, it's like, yeah, he's tossing the child. So yeah, that's a, that's a dead kid. Sweet. That's my one of my very few plane crash ones that I have. There's not very huh. many. I wonder if there's any in Soul Survivor. Like if there's any dead oh. kids. Oh, and... Maybe. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> I'm, I'll go back and watch. Uh, who else do we have? Okay. Uh, Jose Quaglio plays Father Stefani. He was also in Who Saw Her Die. I think that's something that you and I have both talked about on either June's Exploitation or mm-hmm. Horror Gives Back episodes. He's got a great look, like a commissioner or a police mm-hmm. or even like a priest. Yeah. Like he's, got, he's got that great look. He's got that perfect look for those roles for sure. Uh, Fabio Gama is Giorgio. That's Christine's boyfriend. Uh, he's also writing the gospel according to George, which we'll get into. Uh, Tom Flahey is Martin Winters, the uncle. Now, I have seen 22 movies starring him, and I didn't even realize it because um, I looked at him, him up real quick, and it was like, you've seen oh, yeah. 22 out of 125 of his movies. I was like, holy shit. And most of them are small roles. Like He was in a lot of Argento. Deep Red, Cat of Nine Tails, Four Flies on Grey Velvet. But he was also in uh, Salon Kitty, Almost Human, The Big Gun Down, All the Colors of the Dark. I mean, Massacre Time. It's so many movies. Yeah, he's in a ton. Never really like starring though. Like, I mean, he doesn't necessarily have like a super familiar face, but yeah. Anyway, Tom Falahi, he's in a lot of movies. Check him out. <laughs> <laughs> Yorgo Voyagas, who plays Dan slash the cane man slash spoiler Satan. <laughs> yes. He's also in Kinski's Vampire in Venice from 1988 and Diodato's The Washing Machine from 1993. Uh, we will get into more of this film right after this promo from our network. <laughs> You're listening to the Prescribed Films Podcast Network, home to hundreds of hours of free podcast entertainment. The shows on this network all have a common goal, providing you with the best discussions about movies and other forms of entertainment media. The PFPN hopes to fill your ear holes with audio joy. Visit our website with links to all the other amazing shows at www.thepfpn.com. Thanks for listening. All right, so Lance, you and I, usually when we cover a movie, watch it at least twice before doing it. Mm-hmm. And I noticed the first time you watched it, you didn't give it a star rating, but you did give it a heart. Yeah. But then the second time, you did give it a star rating. Was that because you were just sort of like, I don't know how I feel about this movie yet, or I, I need a second watch to fully like yeah. feel confident in that? Yeah, I, th- I did that with Creatures from the Abyss, too, okay. our last episode. So. I usually enjoy all these movies, which I think most people would uh, on a second watch, Mm -hmm. especially this one, because there kind of are a lot of, uh, like we just talked about Madhouse. There's a lot to analyze and there's a lot of like theories that you can throw out there. Sure. Um, So yeah, the first time I, I loved it. Obviously the heart was for, you know, what the scene we're going to talk about very soon. (laughs) It is the best, best death scene I think ever. (laughs) Yes. Uh, but yeah, uh, the second rewatch was when I felt like I can give it a star rating because of like how it ends and 
all my theories kind of started coming together. Yeah. What about, so the setting to me is something that is interesting in this, in that I don't necessarily understand why it was set in Venice. Because if you look at a movie like, like Don't Look Now, where it absolutely makes perfect sense for that movie to be set there because you know, Venice, the city is a labyrinth. I've been there myself, like by myself and it fucking sucked because you get lost and you don't have anyone to like help you out and figure out what you're doing. And I'm not a person who, when I'm traveling by myself, likes a, I'm just going to get lost and explore. It's like, no, I need to know like where I'm at. Yeah. You like to have like an itinerary and exactly. Yeah. Like, I don't want to just get lost in the city, especially being a female. I don't like, that's not ideal for me. So that's my impression of Venice is like this sort of the city is a labyrinth. Don't look now. It totally fits here. It, it doesn't like, I feel like this movie really could have been set almost anywhere. Yeah, I agree because it's, I mean, first off the exterior shots are just beautiful to watch other other than maybe that might be the reason because it is such all the canals and everything. It's just fascinating to look at. Right. You know, there is a scene that involves a canal specifically, you know, with the baby carriage. Yeah. But, but yeah. you could be in a lake and have that. Exactly. You know? Yeah. And with the amount of time that they are actually in scenes in boats, mm-hmm. it I felt like I was watching like an episode of The Amazing Race. <laughs> like they're just traveling <laughs> all these places. And it seems like they're in, you know, traveling to different countries and, and cities. But yeah. yeah, I thought like, it, what's the history of Venice? You know, again, there has to be some sort of reason. Um, but if you're looking at like, you know, religious reasons specifically, again, you could pull any city that might have just as. It should be in Rome. If like, especially given right. the subject matter, it's like, why aren't we, ha- why isn't this movie in Rome? Is it because we had access to this particular place to shoot our movie? So this is therefore where we're going to set it. And right. Cause otherwise, I mean, the only other reason I can think is maybe there's supposed to be some sort of added tension by having our main character, Mark be blind because it seems like not an ideal city for someone who's blind to live in. That's true. Yeah. And well, yeah, maybe that could be it because there is a scene where he tries to escape mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, Dan, the cane man's like, you know, if he would have, if I wouldn't have gotten him, he would have drowned in the canals yeah. or something. So maybe, maybe the fact that it's kind of isolated specifically for, for Mark, the yeah. blind character, which also, how did he get, how, what caused his blindness? Oh, they never explain it. They don't. They're, and he's I appreci- been blind for three years and they never explain why. <laughs> yeah. At first I was like, okay, first off, Christine's a bitch, his sister. Mm-hmm. And I was like, she obviously hates Mark and his blindness. She must have never been happy her entire life. Like, yeah. But then I find out that his blindness only occurred like three years ago. And, you know, I respect that it's left a mystery, but at the same time, give, me, give us some more clues. Yeah. There, it could add to the story. Theory. The devil's plan goes back three years to let's blind this boy, Mark. They've already chosen Christine to carry the spawn of Satan, right? So we got a blind Mark in order to give him a reason to try to to fulfill the plan that we have to try to get his sight back. Right, because this is a centuries old plan from what it sounds like yeah. or it's and the house that they're the boarding house that they're living in the winter's home is the specific location so yeah i mean sure. that's a, that that it, that makes sense like it's all part of the plan for i didn't think the of that until this, yeah i didn't think of it though until this like second or third time i watched it though. so it's like, yeah yeah because i kept thinking like what is 
the purpose of the blindness. You know, I get that he has these visions and stuff, you know, and he has a desire to see mm-hmm. and again, but, uh, yeah, I think a lot of it is like casting doubt on, you know, it's like, Oh, you, you can't see like what's really going on also for him to have the visions of Dan or the can- the man with the cane, but not knowing it's him until it's too late and he's already moved into the, the boarding house. Right. Um, yeah, so it's, I'm not sure. I think the movie still could have worked fine without him being blind. I think it's just, it's one of those things where it's just adding this other layer of Italian sort of weirdness to it. It's like, hey, yeah. there's that movie Rosemary's Baby and let's just add all these other weird elements to it. It's also because like the whole, there's a whole plan of, like you said, it's like a, it's a pre preset plan for the devil to, kind of resurrect and uh, live his, he wants to imitate like Jesus's life. Right. Um, And maybe Mark's blindness is it's what helps him cause this, or it's what helps him feels this feel feels this rage and this jealousy, which is brought up a couple of times in the the movie. So he maybe is jealous of other people who can't see. Yeah. I don't know. I'm focusing too much on this blindness at this point. Yeah. It's fine. (laughs) Uh, Let's talk about the people who die in this movie. Okay. There's a lot. Not necessarily gory deaths very much. It's saved all for one, which we'll get to. Um, Yeah. So first of all, we have, um, when we start the movie, Mark and Christine are both uh, charges of the grandmother. Like she's still their their custodian. Mm -hmm. And she makes a very clear point about saying that they're not moving in anywhere else, uh, you know, until I'm dead. And I'm like, well, you're obviously going to die now. Yeah, this is like 12 minutes into the movie. Yeah. Versus... Setting herself up for it. So then they're at church and Mark's just like causing a scene for whatever reason. His sister yells at him to go sit in the back um, and stop bothering people. And when he is heading back there, he accidentally knocks over a candle that falls on his grandma's dress and burns her alive like instantly. Yeah. And no, everybody stands up and stares. There are no attempts to put this fire out (laughs) as she's, you know, just screaming and and terror and in death. And, you know, one of, I think the priest makes like an analogy, Mm -hmm. like it's like, she's been incinerated by a thunderbolt from heaven. Yeah. As she's sitting there screaming and burning, they're all just staring at her. (laughs) But again, he probably has something to do with the plan, the master plan. But I I feel like Christine or any of the, (laughs) Any of the people in the at the altar would just run up and start putting out this fire. Yeah, you would think so. It's like maybe throw a cloth over her or something. Nothing. They're all, you know, deep in thought and prayer at that point. Blame God. That's yeah, there's a lot to blame God for in this movie. <laughs> yeah, so that that is the first death. Yeah. It's pretty brutal. It, that one's pretty yeah, that one's pretty brutal. Um then so after she dies, of course, Mark and Christine move into the boarding house with their aunt and uncle. Mark sees a vision of his aunt Madeline getting stabbed with a cane, but by the Dan, the man with the cane in one of his visions. And then when the vision is over, he goes to see his aunt and realizes she's having some kind of heart trouble. She gives him a warning about the Pentecost and then she dies from heart failure. So, you know, the cane stabbings, it's kind of just like, you know, jabby, jabby, nothing particularly gory or anything like that. There's a one where I think it's Vicky later on. She gets cane stabbed in the head. 
Yeah, right. she gets stabbed. Yeah, and it's pretty good practical effects because yeah. they have the cane, you know, sinking in it itself. Uh, yeah, extending, but it it's not like you know Bob getting drilled in the head or anything like that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And then, so the aunt dies, and then shortly after, Mark is hearing these voices talking about, uh, including his uncle, and what we realize later is the man with the cane. That, you know, his job is done now, even though the girl is not, the child has not been conceived yet. He's hearing these voices. And then all of a sudden, his sister and him are walking up the stairs and the uncle's body just drops and he's hung himself, hanged himself. Or he's walking with Vicky. That's right. Vicky, you're right. Not his sister. Yeah. And then he just, she's the one who sees it, obviously, (laughs) because Mark's blind. (laughs) there's just that that hanging scene, which is it looks good. Mm-hmm. You know, they have that. Every movie has that effect. Down, yeah, tied at the waist and boom, good stuff. Again, no preacher hanging himself at the beginning of a Fulci movie, but it's still still really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I already mentioned Mark having a vision of Vicky being stabbed with a cane. I think what's great about that one though is so later on he goes into the it, it's a. It's a room, but it looks like it's a closet. So we'll call it the closet room. And he goes to show his sister like, Vicky's dead, Vicky's dead. And she doesn't find anything but a doll. And then when they leave the room, they drop the doll. And then there's that evil child laugh with yeah. it. And then there's just blood everywhere. That's what the, that weird laugh gave me like tourist trap vibes. And yes. Stuff. Very like very like exactly like the mannequin laughs in that. Yeah. And then when he goes back later, he actually does find her corpse. Yes. Maggot infested. Like that's the, you know, the second best point of gore in this film, I think. Yeah, it looks great. It's very slimy, gross worms. There's a lot of like worm stuff going on in this, like in the water from the house, like from the faucet, there seems to always be worms or some sort of slugs. But that scene too, uh, another thing that Donaggio would do is he would play... I don't know what elements, it, you know, if it, it's, it's a score that's that's played throughout the movie, but he would play it backwards in certain uh, scenes. Yeah. And it's super effective because it's just like, I don't know. He does it in these scenes. I think he did it in the scene when he found Vicky's dead body where it just sounds. It's disorienting. Very disorienting. Yeah. yeah. I think too, like what what's so effective about when Mark does finally find her body is that the fact that he's blind. And so the only way he can. Like, if you or I see that, we're going to, like, look at it and be like, ugh. Mark's <laughs> way of seeing is he has to touch it. So he's got his fingers all up in there, like, touching all the maggots and fucking all this shit. It's gross. It is. Yeah. It's also that scene, the very first scene, when he turns on the faucet uh, in the bathroom and all the worms and black mm-hmm. water starts coming out. And all he does is yell, what is it? It's disgusting. It's disgusting. <laughs> he's, like, rubbing his hands together. <laughs> <laughs> what is it's slimy. Ugh. Poor Mark. I know. I do think one of the other things that when it comes to like the gore is to, I guess, a couple things. And I'm wondering if this was supposed to be some sort of foreshadowing. So, you know, when Father Stefano is in the church and I think he's talking to Mark and behind him on the wall, there's these glass round cases and there's heads in there. Yeah. 
is that supposed to be foreshadowing for him getting decapitated later, do you think? Or the, is that a normal thing that is in churches? I have no idea. I, I don't know either. I mean, you were, you were in Venice. You didn't. I didn't see, the, if I, <laughs> I would have liked Venice a lot better if I saw decapitated heads right. in churches there. <laughs> Maybe that's the reason it was picked because there are decapitated heads in Venice. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've, I, I feel like that could be some sort of foreshadowing because that doesn't seem to make sense. Yeah. Okay. I, I don't know, but it does lead to probably one of, it's definitely like, there's my absolute favorite moment in the movie, which we'll get to. And then like pretty far down, here's my next favorite moment in the movie is when Giorgio tricks Father Stefano into baptizing the baby, like his whole plan for that. Yeah. Uh, and then the father immediately gets decapitated. Um, he falls off the boat, he gets caught up under it, and then his the fake head floats up in the water, bobbing around after yeah. this huge burst of blood in the water. Yeah, the propeller slices open and yeah, sever it decapitates him. And it's it, it's a great looking I mean it's obviously fake, but sure. it, it is creepy looking, especially with the water moving and stuff, and it kind of bobs up. Yeah. Love it. Gior Giorgio adds like some line. He's like adding another line to his gospel, <laughs> according to George, that he is writing. It's like, he who baptizes shall be decapitated. So it is written. <laughs> I fucking love Giorgio. <laughs> I love where his character goes. Like, yeah. and, and then it, the second time I watched it, I started having these theories about him. I guess I can get into it now. Yeah. You know, Christine, he's going to marry Christine, who's I think a complete bitch. And there's a lot of confusion for that too, because he does say that, in the very beginning, before she inherits the boarding house, you know, after before the grandmother dies, they want to get married. Mm -hmm. And he says that he later in the movie said he wanted to marry her just to have an easier life, which doesn't make sense before she became this, you know. Right. Um, I don't know. I feel almost like, especially at the end of the movie, when George pops up, mm -hmm. he comes across as like this kind of guardian angel, like this angel character. And I almost feel like he's trying... I don't know. I feel like he's he his character's like some sort of char uh, angel on earth to help prevent what's happening, to try and warn and help Mark in a lot of cases. He's the only one that seems to be on Mark's side for a while. But at the same time, he's just getting drunk and like fucking whoever. And I feel like he knows it's like too far gone. So he's just going to like dive into all these human vices on earth and just yeah. start going crazy. But he shows up at the end and he's like, do you really think I died and do you really think or do you really think I'm alive and I don't know I, I I have this like theory that the Madeline character who's also the same as Vicky's mom mm -hmm. and, the, and the midwife okay. that her and George are kind of planted part of this plan mm -hmm. for you know the devil to arise and obviously she's some sort of servant or you know to deliver the baby to cause this type of like fear in Mark to kind of like guide him on his path to do what he does. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like their characters have some sort of like supernatural good and evil yeah, traits. I, I definitely agree with that. I think having these sort of dueling angel of light, angel of darkness kind of thing interplaying with this. And yeah, I think Giorgio is, have you ever read um, Good Omens? Neil Gaiman, Terry Pratchett. No. So you've got the, it's kind of in, in that sense, the, the angels, there's an angel from heaven and, and a dark angel from hell or a demon from hell. And they, they're basically like best friends on earth. And it's basically, there's, there's a little bit of that in there where it's like, yeah, I'm, I, I'm not a hundred percent good. Like I'm still like, I let, I enjoy drinking and doing these sort of other things. And sort of Giorgio sort of, I think once he gets into the house and marries her, yeah, 
and is like surrounded by sex workers and is like, fuck it. I'm just going to chug this JMB and fuck this girl. And you know, this is my, I'm living my best life. Cause I know the fucking antichrist is coming and nothing right. I can do. That's about kind it, of like so. what I was, what I was feeling. Yeah. Like. So I, I agree hundred percent. I think they're both sort of part of every, everyone has their part to play in this huge plan. Right. But they just don't, you know, there's only some people who know what their part is in it. Mark clearly not knowing what his is. Right. One thing I do really like too is, so after Christine, um, she gives birth on a boat while they're leaving on vacation. Olga Carlotto shows up as a midwife. So the son Alex is born. At one point they're having a birthday party for him. And there's this, they're they're exchange, they're sharing like this skeleton mask and like dancing with each other and then there's this other shot with Christine in the middle and like all of the uh, they're all at the table with all the food and then all of the the women who are living at the boarding house or all the sex workers are are sort of flanking her and it was very Last Supper like yeah, I noted that too okay. yeah because that that whole scene is very a lot of the scenes in here seem completely dreamlike like yes. you don't really know what's happening or who's real, who's possessed, you know, who's part of this, this evil plan. But that scene is especially, especially weird because it's the whole setup. They're all drunk. They're all not thinking correctly. They allow pretty much Mark to walk off with Alex, the baby, which they've been extremely protective of up to that point. Mm -hmm. And also Dinaggio is like his, the, the music during that, that, that scene is super, again, just really disorienting. But that Last Supper scene or that Last Supper visual, I totally got. Even with the lighting and the colors that yeah. were used, it, it just really stood out. It, it's clearly very purposeful because if the whole story of Satan coming to have his child and wanting it to be resurrected so that it can live the exact same life as Jesus, then of course, like you need to have your last, your last supper. But this time you've got the, the madam of a brothel flanked by her sex workers, because of course that's the last supper of Satan. <laughs> right. Yeah. There was, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of, there was a lot of saxophone, I think in that scene too. Like yeah. It, it was just an odd, yeah. The whole thing is, yeah. So during this dinner, like Lance said, all the women in the house have been very sort of protective of Alex. They've obviously become part of this whole cult of protecting him or whatever it is. The only thing that's missing is a is a hellhound, unfortunately. I mean, there's that like little greyhound whippet dog walking around every so often with Dan the Cane Man. But... Yeah, but you never see it like... It's I mean, not if, if you had to pick him. any like dog breed to be like a hellhound, it's not a whippet. Yeah, don't don't pick a whippet. <laughs> <laughs> Might as well get a chihuahua. <laughs> so Mark, like, once all the girls get drunk, Mark takes the baby, and he goes downstairs to I guess what is like Giorgio's sort of uh, art studio. He does like metal fabrication, mm -hmm. and it's established earlier in the film. There is this like metal wall it's almost like what you would find um not a wall not a full wall but like this large just a sculpture sculpture like, yeah flat sculpture with like huge metal spikes sticking out of it almost like you would find like inside of an iron maiden or something right like that. exactly and yeah greatest i i need to know like, like i mean the first time i saw this obviously i was like rewinding it over and over again and yeah. watching it so so i mean i knew I had never seen this movie yeah. when you, you, as your pick, but I knew that there was, you gave me the heads up, there was a child death you know, for your birthday. And on Letterboxd, you have a review that just says, well, this is just simply one of the greatest infant deaths I've ever seen. Yes. So even being aware of it 
and like waiting for it to happen. Uh, I mean, there are certain scenes too where Mark pushes the baby carriage into the canal and I'm yeah. like, okay, this is it. Okay, I'm ready. This is going to be good. What happens? Yeah. Okay, it's not that part. Or when he, there's another scene where he just kind of walks off with the baby before this, this, uh, this spike scene. Yeah. Uh, even being prepared for it and aware, <laughs> I was like, it just out of the, out of the blue, he casually picks up the baby and whoosh, split second throws it and just impaled, like yeah. kills the baby instantly spikes coming out of the back of his head. So I know last episode we mentioned from uh, creatures from the abyss. Mm -hmm. There's a quote that says, Professor, how long have you been fucking fish? <laughs> yeah. Which could be the best line in like cinematic history. Yes. This baby kill could be the most shocking murder ever. Not just like child death, but any human death. Yeah. Like this one caught me completely off guard. It's kind of up there. I felt the same kind of feeling when I first saw Sleepaway Camp for the first time. Yeah. And at the end when Angela's revealed, I got that whole like, holy shit. Yeah. What am I watching feeling? Yeah, it's just like awe and disgust. So, I mean, thank you for this pick. You're welcome. Because like I said earlier, this is a gift to the world. I it mean, it this, is. It's a visual gift to the world. When, when I'm old, when I'm an old man <laughs> and I breathe my last breath through my old man lips, I'm going to think of this scene and I'm going to be happy and I'm going to be like, oh, this... What a great world I'm living, you know, I'm leaving, you know, just <laughs> there's, there's so a, you're leaving a world where something like that exists in it, a film. Yes. Yeah. So I, I applaud liberatory for, you know, following through and executing it the way you did, because yeah. this, yeah, I can't, this, this is the best, definitely the best child death scene I've ever seen, but I think it might be one of the best just death scenes period in, in movies. Yeah. I'm, and I'm with you too. Like I knew it was in there before I watched it. Like not exactly what it was. Like it got spoiled for John because he, I guess he had seen a gif of it or something before having watched the movie. But even then, like he got, you, it got a reaction out of him. Right. When I first watched it, I think it's, you hit the nail on the head with like the sleepaway camp comparison. You know, I saw that movie as a kid. You're like, holy shit. And what's, I feel like what's so hard to find now. And part of the reason that like, I like going backwards and finding movies so much more than watching like new stuff where I'm like, I know exactly what's going to happen in this fucking movie. You know, right. Captain America is going to save the day and whatever is coming across stuff like this, where you can still get those reactions to something that happens in a film that can catch you so off guard that will stick with you for so long. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause I mean, most movies are very formulaic nowadays. Like, you know, what's going to happen even if it is a surprising element, it's not, I don't know, it's just not as uh, impactful as watching these older movies that just go so hard and, I don't know, throw logic out the window. I mean, yes. especially these Italian movies, and that's why they're so great. Yeah. It's like, there's no rhyme or reason why he had to kill the baby that way. Like, he could have <laughs> easily just, like, where's its mouth? Okay, let me smother it. Well, it's very casual, too, because that scene, the baby's on the floor on a pillow, mm -hmm. and he's sitting on the bed, and he's you know, reaching around and he picks up like a knife or yeah. something. and like, okay, he's going to stab the baby. But now he just casually just puts the knife down, walks up. Like he remembered. Oh yeah. <laughs> There's Giorgio's sculpture. <laughs> it's so brilliantly executed. Yeah. I, I love, literally. I love that about it. And you know, and so what happens after that is that he seems to, wake up from this dream he go he's been going to this well down in the storeroom and putting water on his eyes because father stefano had told him it's miracle water so he thinks he's going to regain his sight by putting this water on his eyes right. he does that again 
after having killed the baby and miraculously now all of a sudden he's got his sight back. So he thinks like, I've been rewarded by God for killing this baby of Satan. But then he goes to the cemetery and finds out like, no, the baby's actually been, you know, just like Jesus has been resurrected and the reward actually came from Satan for helping follow through with the plan. Right. Fucking brilliant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The born born from immaculate conception dies and then resurrects. Yep. And the whole plan was, you know, to create this hate and rage in Mark to kill the baby. Mm-hmm. And that was all, that was our part of the plan. And then he's essentially rewarded for his deeds by getting his eyesight back. Yes. I mean it again, but for playing like this Judas role, like it's, it's amazing. Yeah. So like Liberatory's message though, I think is overall, like you should be kind to people, you know, don't show jealousy, don't show fear, but do kill babies. Yeah, that's absolutely. <laughs> kill babies, get rewarded. That's the moral of the story, folks. Yes. Unleash evil in this world forever. <laughs> Love it. All right. So uh, recommendation, Lance. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think it's, we've talked about it. It's kind of, it's a bit of a mess. I mean, I didn't yeah. hit on like the pacing, but like the pacing and the whole cutting and editing, mm-hmm. we are jumping from scene to scene is, it's hard to, uh, it's hard to get used to in some cases. Like yeah. there's a lot of scenes where a question's asked and the answer is immediately cut to a different scene. Like, mm-hmm. but I do, I, I, I find that endearing too, but the best kill of all time. I mean, I recommend, I do recommend this without a doubt. I mean, I like movies that you're kind of left guessing and you're almost walking away with more questions and answers. Yeah. This one has it. I mean, it'll open your mind and you're kind of forced to think and come up exactly what you think it means, which is great. Yeah. I think it improves a little bit on the second watch. Agree. Um, for sure. A lot of these that we covered do. It, it is messy, but it, it it has that that flavor, that Italian horror dream. Like there's so much... There's an added layer of it too, with Mark having these visions. Like we also don't know well, what's real and what's he's seen, right? You know, and so I like having the suspension of logic in movies like this. I come to expect it, and then when it's too straightforward, I get annoyed with it. Or when it's too out there, where it's like I don't understand anything that happened in this movie, right. and they don't give me anything that makes up for it, then I'm just like, eh, over it. But. Hard, hard, hard recommend from me, obviously, for for certain reasons. Even though if you haven't watched it, I know obviously we've spoiled it at this point, but even it's one of those things where even describing it does not. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. Even knowing, even us talking about specifically this, this baby kill, you're going to be caught off guard. And then all these other like theories were thrown out there. You might come up with something completely different. I mean, it, it's definitely worth a watch. Yeah, for sure. Um, double feature pick to go with this land. So I'm going with John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness. Nice. From 1987. <laughs> uh, so kind of like Damned in Venice, it has this building dread and it all comes to a head in a single haunting location, kind of like, you know, in this monastery mm-hmm. where everyone are in this abandoned church with this canister containing some strange liquid, which is essentially the embodiment of Satan. And the characters in the church are all having these weird dreams kind of these visions which are clues to the evil happenings that are coming very similar to how mark has his visions yeah. and damned but yeah i think most people have seen prince of darkness if you haven't 
How dare you? Yeah, you have to watch it. <laughs> but the first time I watched Damned in Venice, I kept thinking of Prince of Darkness. There's a lot of gross, slimy worms that kind of reminded me of, uh, you know, the scenes with like all the gross, slimy worms in Prince of Darkness. Yeah. Um, all the religious lingo concerning like Satan's offspring. Each movie has this woman getting impregnated by evil. Mm-hmm. Um, e- even like the the well, the well in the in, in Damned right, in yeah, Venice, yeah, yeah. like it's kind of. It's in a storeroom. It feels like it's kind of underground, but it's reminiscent of like the room where that evil canister is. And like, if you open the well or if you open this canister, evil is just going to unleash like in this world. And then there's that little girl who kind of pops up in Damned in Venice, Mm -hmm. which I guess is that Vicky? Yes. In the background, she's like the Alice Cooper. She's just there to kind of freak people out. Yeah. (laughs) So, and it's hard, it's hard for me to pick like a favorite John Carpenter, but Prince of Darkness has always been like in my top three. I yeah. just love it so much. It's great. It's, uh, you know, I think we're at the point now where we don't have to say it's underrated anymore. I think enough people have finally come around to it. I think maybe 10 years ago, we'd have to make that case and be like, right. okay, people, really, Prince of Darkness, come Yeah, on. Now, now it's getting like so many releases and stuff. Like it, yeah. everybody should, I don't think it's streaming anywhere, so you should buy it yeah. and watch it with Damned Minutes. Yes. All that. What about you? I had a lot to choose from because obviously, you know, I've got my big murder wall over uh, yeah, here. Yeah. But, um, and I did choose something that technically is on the murder wall. And this is a Spanish Rosemary's Baby knockoff called Bloody Sect, aka Secta Siniestra from 1982. Okay. Uh, it's directed by Ignacio Equino. Uh, Vinegar Syndrome actually has a release of this film. So I definitely recommend folks picking it up. This is about a woman who is pregnant with the Antichrist, um, but she's being carefully watched by a cult or sect of Satanists while she's living in her house. Her partner goes blind at the time, so you have another character in there who doesn't quite know what's really going on. It's this sort of Eurosleaze, Rosemary's Baby knockoff with a splash of telenovela in it because it's got like this one weird female character who lives in the house but is mentally unstable and then she gets taken away but then she escapes and comes back and is like living in the attic as this weird other plot element to it i'm not going to get too far into it because this is technically a spoiler warning for my april showers of blood yes so um, i picked up this vinegar syndrome i haven't watched it yet so glad you own it because (laughs) i think cat ellinger's got a commentary on it so i'm looking forward to listening to that and um I do have to warn folks, um, I never give, I hate giving trigger warnings, except when it's an animal death. Um, there is a pretty gnarly frog death in this one. Oh, so okay. just FYI for folks. But I think this would be a super fun, like, let's do a little Spanish weirdness and a little bit of Italian weirdness, Antichrist baby ripoff. And and I do, I want you to be fully prepared for the ending of this one because it, it you will stand up and cheer. Yes. When I you see those. it, don't, if you can avoid looking at letterboxd. Okay. Try to do that. Or at least don't look too closely at the poster. Cause there is a semi spoiler in the poster. It's good enough. Yeah. So Prince of darkness or bloody sect, AKA secta siniestra for double features. Yes. Uh, Lance next pick. Okay. So it's spring. Right. Well, I'm in Texas. Yeah. Even though it's in Texas. Yeah. I mean, the weather's starting to change. This is my favorite part of time of year, actually. It, it's it's very nice right now. The weather's nice. The flowers, the trees are blooming. Oh, God. Well, oh, you're going to go nasty. Well, it's also the start of baseball season. 
Oh, okay. Okay. So I'm a huge fan of baseball. I know a lot of people think it's like the most boring sport ever, but I love it. Uh, and I had selected this pick beforehand mm -hmm. because baseball season was supposed to start a couple of days after it drops. But uh, there's a lockout happening right now in, in baseball. Why? Because it, it's the MLB, it's Major League Baseball versus the MLB Players Association. Mm -hmm. And they're having, there's these demands where the Players Association want younger players to be paid more, you know, changing some of the rules and some of like the, the, the amounts and stuff. We could talk about like baseball stuff, like in this, basically in, I mean, in the episode, maybe. Mm, no, I might bring some stuff up. You can bring them some stuff, but I mean, just know that like when my eyes start glazing over, like maybe it's time to stop. <laughs> well, I'm surprised you asked why about well, the lockout. Well, I, I thought maybe like, you know, there was some like civil rights thing or something. Like no, it, it's all about it. like, you know, money? fair. It, it is about money. Okay. I mean, the owners want to hoard the money. The players want to get paid, which they arguably deserve especially the younger players. So, I mean, they I'm get paid sorry. a lot. Yeah. I mean, you, there, there's, you know, you can, you can look at both sides. You're not going to get any sympathy from me. I'm going to be like everyone in any sport <laughs> makes too much money. Sorry. All of you, you're getting paid to hit a ball with a stick. It, there's a lot more than that. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. They got to catch it too. They have to catch it. They have to, they have to pitch it. They have to throw it. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. So the first two series okay. of the season have been canceled, right. right? So it's it's been pretty much pushed back. We don't know when it's starting, but I'm going to follow through and and keep my pick, which involves baseball. Okay. And a serial killer. Okay. And it's Night Game from 1989. Oh, is this the one where the hook is in the baseball? Yes. Okay. Everybody look at them. I mean, if you're not a fan of baseball, just there's serial, there's murders going on. It yeah. also stars uh, Roy Scheider. I love him. Yeah. This is another uh, Pino DiNaggio score nice. as well. But yeah, if, you, if you're like, oh, fuck, baseball? Why would, why would, why I do I want to watch a movie with baseball? I'm not surprised that he picked this, actually. Exactly. Just, just look at the movie poster, like Erica said. It's, it's like, you, you're going to want to watch this okay. movie. But it's about a detective played by Roy Scheider who is attempting to solve a series of murders, which appear to be a serial killer. And while he's investigating the days and the frequency of these murders, they seem to be related to when a specific baseball pitcher wins a game. Okay. So it's this one. It's filmed and it takes place uh, in the Galveston and Houston area. Okay. So is it the that team? It's the Houston Astros. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's this your, is that's the, your team. This is pro. I know. This is like tailor made. This is your wow. <laughs> if there ever there was a Lance movie, holy shit! <laughs> so you get to. I mean, you're in the Astrodome. There's a lot of scenes in the the Eighth Wonder of the World, the Astrodome. This is 1989. Is it really? That's what it's called. Uh, no. That's what it was referred to as. Yeah, the Eighth Wonder of the World. By who? By the world. Mm. <laughs> By people in Houston Texas. Houston Astro yeah. fans. Okay. <laughs> By the people who built it. Okay. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> so yeah, it's not all baseball there. There's a focus obviously on the baseball backstory and the detectives like a big Houston Astros fan. Yeah. So yeah, even the, even though the real season of baseball is postponed, uh, to who knows when night game is on. So it's on Tubi. It has 516 views as of this recording and I hope you enjoy it. I'm excited. I actually, I, I think I've had this on my watch list for a while just because of the poster. Yeah, that, it's, it, it, it's recent enough because the poster does, it, it could be kind of spoilery too, but. Hmm. Okay. I'm th I'm looking, I'm picturing it in my head and I, I'm like, I, I might see the spoiler after the fact, but if you look at it now and I'm like. Mm. 
Yeah. Well, while you're watching, yeah, while you're watching it, there's clues like, you know, how does a serial killer kill people? And you're kind of like, okay. Well, I think I know from the books. Okay, but, got it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, it, it's fun. It's I can't wait to dive into it. Baseball related. All right, night game. Next night episode. game on Tubi. Looking forward to it. Before we get into plugs, just a quick heads up. I available now. I did a guest spot on the Cobwebs podcast with Daniel, who was our guest early on for Never Take Sweets from a Stranger. Mm-hmm. Um, he's kind enough to have me on to talk about some Steve McQueen movies. He's doing a March McQueen madness series. So I got to go on there, gush about McQueen, talk about bullet and the getaway. So uh, be sure to check out the cobwebs pod for that. If you're not already, you can follow this podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, all at unsung horrors. And you can follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and letterboxd at hex massacre. And you can find me on Twitter, letterboxd and Instagram at L Thanks everyone for listening, y'all. And we'll see you back next episode for Night Game. Baseball, y'all. Baseball. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Satan is real. Working in spirit. You can see him and hear him in this world every day. Satan is real.
it's Death by Video. I'm Phil. I'm Kit. And I'm Graham saying welcome to our podcast full of merry movie mayhem. Ever wonder what an Irish kung fu movie would look like? It's called Fatal Deviation and we covered it. Ever wonder what a movie about a thousand cats would look like? It's called Night of a Thousand Cats and we covered it. And it stars Hugo Stiglitz. Listen to Death by Video to hear us discuss and dissect some of the weirdest, wildest, and wackiest films ever made. All this and more on Death by Video! Woo!